Kelly, it's soccer time. How are you liking the World Cup so far? I am actually not watching the World Cup this time around. What? This is like your thing. Uh, well, yeah, I suppose soccer in and of itself is. I'm not as big into international soccer. I typically watch the Women's World Cup. There's a lot of things giving me pause when it comes to this World Cup in particular. Did Portland not make it to the World Cup this year? The fact that you're asking that question tells me you don't know enough about soccer. <laughs> well, apparently you know a bit more and some of the things that you know are bothering you about this particular World Cup. Yeah, both. Um, I mean, the perpetual issue of FIFA as an organization being a questionable, perhaps illegitimate head of global soccer is, is a problem. But then the issues of it being in Qatar also it just seems like a perfect storm of bad vibes. Shouldn't it be called FISA? <laughs> Depending on if you go with football or soccer, both are both are legitimate. Just be careful which one you use in America. We play real football in America. Hand egg. <laughs> extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Kelly might not be watching the World Cup this year, but joining us is someone that has been watching the World Cup to offer some insight into this issue. Jeff Fisher is an avid soccer fan who supports Liverpool internationally and the Portland Timbers, hell yeah, domestically. He's been to many games and even gets up at absurd hours to watch them live. He's also recorded every World Cup match so far. Welcome, Jeff, to Indubitably. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm uh, always interested to chat about soccer and controversy. So um, I feel like this is going to be in my, within my wheelhouse. Nice. <laughs> so you like Liverpool. I know England dominated Senegal today. Are you happy about that? Yeah, no, that was uh, it was quite the game. Good old Jordan Henderson from Liverpool scored one of the three goals. So it was good. England is probably my second uh, team in the tournament after the United States. So it's good to see that they're doing well. Um, I also have a little bit of a soft spot for Argentina to take it all, just because I do want to see Leo Messi finally get his World Cup trophy, which is, I think, the only accolade left for what is, in my opinion, the greatest player of all time. I saw a video of um, Buenos Aires leading up to and then after a goal, and it went from dead silent to like an eruption of noise. It was a cityscape. The entire city went absolutely wild for it. So there's clearly a lot of people very passionate and very invested in this World Cup. Yeah, the World Cup in South America is kind of different level. Um, it's interesting to me how much certain tournaments are important to certain cultures. And definitely in South America, you know, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, who, fun fact here, Uruguay was the first team to ever win the World Cup. They have a lot of heritage and there's a lot of cultural pressure to make sure that they're doing very, very well. So I know a lot of people are picking Brazil to kind of take it all with Neymar. Um, and I think that they're probably not wrong. But, uh, you know, I have that, that soft spot for Argentina to hopefully try and, and, and bring it. So you don't think that the Patriots are going to win again this year with Tom Brady? You know what? I was really, really hoping. But I, from what I heard, they didn't actually even make or qualify for the World Cup this time around. So... Oh, shoot, it must have been those deflated balls. I'm hoping Michael Jordan qualifies next year, so we'll see. 
<laughs> well, the World Cup is obviously happening right now. The final is going to take place next weekend. But why don't we rewind the clock 12 years ago to 2010, which is when Qatar won their bid to host. And I think that's when some of the controversy that Kelly referenced earlier started to happen. As usual, we like to approach these topics with a method, a strategy, if you will, much like soccer teams approach the World Cup. I'm reaching there, I know. But I have a a few topics here I think we're going to be covering today. First, we'll be talking about how the bid process works in general for countries to get to host the World Cup. Next, we'll discuss specifically the bid that Qatar made in 2010 and potential questions about that. Next, after having secured the bid, what are some of the issues specific to Qatar as a host country? That all said, are there any things that we can be hopeful about when it comes to both Qatar and the organization as a whole? Finally, do we actually support the World Cup? Should we be watching it? Should we be sitting it out and protesting instead? Should Jeff be recording every match? All right. So first, how does the bid process work in general? Well, the World Cup hosts are chosen by the Federation Internationale de Football Association, or FIFA, for those of us that have horrible, whatever, French accents. And what happens is countries who are interested in hosting come forward, and purely on the strength of the proposal that they bring to FIFA, their commitment to the international community, and their potential contributions to the well-being of the sport, the victor is chosen. Right? Yeah, it's absolutely pure and completely on the merits of what is best for soccer and what is best for the host country in the region. It's very kumbaya. Theoretically speaking, it's supposed to be a pure process, right? But um, I mean, like any cartel, it's going to be rife with all sorts of shenanigans. <laughs> I like the term uh, cartel. Probably accurate to describe FIFA. Mm-hmm. Anything that makes the decisions in a closed door sort of way. And uh, makes the decisions without really showing its cards, I think, you know, can qualify as that. When they choose a host, do they put black smoke up out the chimney? Much like uh, much like the Catholic Church. Hopefully I'm not offending anybody by this. Oh, don't worry about that. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we take a second to go through uh, the questionable? Is that a generous term? History of FIFA and some of the scandals that they've had in the past. There are so many controversies and scandals to choose from when it comes to FIFA. So we're probably going to have to narrow it down to a few in particular, but just know there's a lot more out there. First, in 2015, there was an investigation because over two dozen FIFA officials were implicated in a 24-year self-enrichment scheme. Central to the scandal were accusations of bribery. That seems to be a a word we'll be using a lot today. Yeah, these were connected to the awarding of hosting rights for the 2018 World Cup in Russia and, fast forward to present day, 2022 in Qatar. And in this particular case, the U.S. Department of Justice charged seven FIFA executives with having received over $150 million in bribes over the last two decades. Yeah, these bribes were payment for everything from potentially skewed officiating to media contracts to, of course, topic at hand today, bid securement. I think it's going to be important to note that while FIFA is a governing organization for basically all of global soccer, there are still regional organizations, but FIFA has got a lot of influence over basically every stage of soccer that's played globally, like 
our referees in MLS wear like FIFA badges and MLS is not FIFA, but FIFA is everywhere. Correct. And FIFA is like the overall sort of international thing. And then within you have each region. So you've got in the North American countries, you've got CONCACAF. Uh, in South America, it's Comnable. Um, please don't ask me to sort of recite what those acronyms <laughs> are. And then, uh, and then of course, you've got the European nations, um, you've got the African nations, and then you've got Asian and Pacific islands. Each one has a certain amount of um, people that are allowed to go to the World Cup and are, are sort of deciding. If you think about the voting process, everybody gets sort of an equal vote from all of the different nations. You know that there's a lot of corruption that's happening in the European countries, right? The big ones. But those are never really ever pointed out. And I've always found it really interesting that they sort of target like the little men on the totem pole instead of going further up. The Trinidad and Tobago's and the random countries that have voting rights, right? Because everybody does, um, has equal ones. Those are the ones that I always find interesting are are being targeted. Mm -hmm. And those accusations go from the bottom and some of the regional organizations all the way up to the actual president of FIFA, Sepp Blatter, who was not included in the arrests in 2015, but ironically, he was actually re-elected president immediately after that investigation and subsequent arrests. And people went apeshit over this. And after some further investigations by FIFA's ironically named ethics committee, he was eventually barred from football-related activities for eight years. So I think they tried to, to... isolate him from the accusations and the world was not having it and this is the classic like you're not we're not kicking you out because of what you did we're kicking you out because you got caught he was really the one that was was paving the way for a lot of this corruption to happen and famously the secretary basically said that they prefer to stage world cups in dictatorships because it's easier to get things done there there's no red tape. They don't have to go through a voting process. There's no consensus or anything like that. At the end of the day, I can't remember if it was Russia or Qatar, but essentially one of those countries got it instead of the United States. I believe it was Qatar, right? I think that's right. I think the U.S. was the last competing nation in their bid. Yeah. And so essentially what happened was like, okay, so the United States got fucked. Now we're going to go ahead and see why. And so... As soon as the United States, the Department of Justice got involved, right, that's when everybody kind of went, oh, shit. I think if an organization is very uh, dismissive or permissive of corruption, they're probably going to be that same way when it comes to the governments they're working with to set up a World Cup. So, you know, bedfellows. And, And that might be why they were willing to bring back Bladder even after all of these accusations and arrests because however it got done, he got stuff done. He oversaw the expansion of FIFA to the global power it is right now. He saw the expansion and introduction of the Women's World Cup that Kelly talked about. He he oversaw the expansion to futsal, other beach soccer, I think, other beach football, sorry, other sports. So there's no questioning the impact of this man as much as we might not like the way that he went about it oh sure influential people can be awful too they contain multitudes a common (laughs) refrain for our podcast well while while he was making himself a lot of money he made a lot of other people a lot of money as well and that's the important part right Mm -hmm. is is if he's making other people a lot of money then they're going to continue to elect him up until he got caught and then 
now you've basically got a different talking head, right? Another balding white guy. I can't name any other presidents of FIFA. I think that Seth Blatter is to FIFA what like Kofi Annan is to the UN. <laughs> I know I can tell you probably who the secretary general is right now, but there was one really prominent one during a very pivotal time of my education and global events. And there you go. <laughs> I mean, plus the name Sepp Blatter, like what a fantastic name to have. I mean, really, right. the fact that this guy like went so far with a name like Sepp Blatter is just, it's <laughs> I love it. <laughs> with all of this being said, is the implication then that Qatar won their bid through nefarious means? It is an unlikely candidate. I mean, I don't think there's really much debate. There's just been so much evidence that have, has now come out that both Russia and Qatar, there was bribery. And the reason why I think Qatar is a little bit more egregious than Russia is because Qatar is not a footballing nation. They're not set up for it. They're a tiny landmass. Famously, they said that they were going to build like artificial clouds to basically put over the top of stadiums in 120 degree weather. At 120 degrees, I don't care what you're putting over that stadium to cool the stadium down. People are going to die. Yeah, FIFA had actually concluded everything that you're saying, which is that Qatar is unsuitable and dangerous because of summer temperatures, because of the lack of space, because of the lack of infrastructure, which is part of the reason we're having the World Cup in November, whereas traditionally it's a summertime event. Yeah. It's weird, right? It, it's snowing outside right now, and the World Cup is happening. As MLS fans, every year, especially a World Cup year, there's a big international break. All, half our squad goes in place for their home countries in the middle of June, July, and then the, the competitive plane in North America is a little stunted because of that. And then everybody comes back after the international break, after they got like kicked out of the World Cup, and the regular season continues. The regular MLS season's been over for a while now. It's just, it's so different than every other year before. And that's the other thing that's really, that's been just absolutely bonkers is that player safety is a really big issue. But now you're having to basically have players play as many matches as they physically possibly can, right? Because again, everything's making money. So nothing is going to sacrifice in the, while you're putting this big fat, world cup in the middle of everything and so the only way to do this is you know traditionally it's a weekly game right these these players run half marathons <laughs> every time that they're 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 playing in a comp competitive game basically and they need time to recover and so when you're having these players expecting these players to play every three or four days to make sure they're fulfilling their league schedule as well Man, I'll tell you what, like you're going to see a ton of injuries come probably, you know, March, April, May, um, as bodies just start to give out. FIFA cares about the spectacle and the money. They don't care about the players. Players are just a commodity, right? They don't really care. Which is probably a compelling reason why all of the other reasons they would have picked Qatar took precedence over the integrity of the sport and player safety. I can't imagine being a soccer player in those conditions. I don't care that they spent, you know, 200 and something billion dollars on infrastructure. You're still putting them in a really adverse environment for this sort of sport. But no player is going to turn down an opportunity to, you know, represent their country at the World Cup. And so they're in a horrible situation. It could be their only World Cup. This is this happens every four years. Are you kidding me? There's no there's there's no way. 
there's no way you could stage this at a country that's like baby killers are us and they would still like <laughs> play in this world cup it doesn't matter i mean at the same time it really sort of shows that at the end of the day fifa thinks that it's more important is the spectacle and the money that's coming in the revenue rather than really paying attention to to player safety the question then is with all of these issues how did qatar get the bid let's let's put bribery aside for a second and go through some of the legitimate reasons that at least fifa put forward for their decision uh, and this is not me just being a bitter american <laughs> but i mean we're going to get it it's just a little bit later right I mean, we we've, we've got that 4 years from now to look forward to it but uh, despite all these issues qatar is obviously hyper motivated it is a petro state in a world that's starting to abandon oil and fossil fuels and it has a wildly wealthy position globally, but also has been desperate to find some other industries that would help sustain its wealth aside from oil. Exactly. A lot of the countries in the Middle East that have this degree of wealth know that it is probably not going to last a whole lot longer. So they're becoming destinations for people who have really extravagant tastes. Like Dubai is another example of that. There are a lot of people who travel there just to shop. I mean, like the Paris Hiltons of the world, it ain't ever going to be me. But that's the kind of market that Qatar, I think, is trying to capitalize on is being a destination for people who have expensive tastes and being an entertainment headquarter country for like this entire region. And the World Cup is probably the biggest thing you can get to kind of kick that into hyperdrive it to become the most popular destination among countries that are just super wealthy only because of oil currently. Mm -hmm. And so with all of that motivation, there were six factors that led to Qatar winning hosting rights. I think four of them are interesting, which we'll cover. Number one, political expediency. Number two, growth of soccer as a culture. Number three, Qatar's previous back scratching for African football. And number four, of course, money. Let's start with political expediency. And this is something that Jeff already referenced. The lack of a democracy in Qatar means that FIFA likes to deal with it more than other countries. Yeah, I mean, 100%. High official, like, let it slip. I think it was even like earlier this year where it's, yeah, we love it when host nations are not democracies because they can just be like, yeah, we're going to do it like this. And we just do it like this, right? It's it's not something you have to pass by anybody. Um, and so, you know, they prefer to to work with, with dictatorships versus democracies, um, for better or worse. I mean, fair. I, if you're talking about what actually takes the least amount of time and least amount of red tape to do, it's dealing with countries that don't even have a democratic process or have a, a illusion of a democracy at minimum. So I can understand why that's a big motivator for an organization like FIFA. And I think that's in part why a country like Russia would also be successful, because even though there is a democracy there, we all know that it is crony capitalism and things are getting done with um, backroom deals and, and what have you. That means organizations like FIFA don't have to wait as long for answers or results. So that one's pretty obvious. Number two is and I think this is a, a pretty legitimate reason, growth of soccer as a culture. And Qatar is the first country in the Middle East to host the World Cup. Yeah, sort of. Qatar is the first hosting nation to have not won a, a game in their group rounds. 
They're the worst soccer team, officially the worst soccer team in a World Cup, as far as a hosting nation goes. And, you know, the Middle East has been sort of traditionally not really great at representing the culture in there. Has it come leaps and bounds as a result of the World Cup? I think that's a pretty weak argument. On the other side, you look at the fact that they awarded the United States the World Cup in 1994. You know, at the time we were an emerging nation for soccer, we weren't exactly, you know, the best, right? I mean, our our best player was probably Alexi Lawless at the time. <laughs> was that the guy with the uh, with the big red hair? Yeah, right. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I'm a ginger, right? Um, and so being a a young soccer player and being a ginger at the same time, like I knew Alexi Lawless. That was that was one of the few soccer players that I knew growing up. But yeah, I mean, you know, and I think their idea of of actually staging a World Cup there was was because they wanted to see growth. You know, really, at the end of the day, the World World Cup isn't what ends up actually growing soccer. The the strength of its um, domestic league is really what ends up growing soccer in these nations, right? If you have a strong domestic league where you have kids that can um, go into training facilities and see a, a way to play for their local team and get paid for it, we've seen that stronger domestic leagues are are really what ends up actually growing the sport within a nation. But don't you believe that having an event like this in a country that maybe hasn't prioritized soccer as much might be something that kind of kicks the domestic culture off a little bit? This is kind of like a marketing scheme. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get that, right? And I think that that's, I think that that's probably correct in some way, shape or form. And, and my hope is, is in the next 10 to 20 years, we see the Middle East is more of a, a powerhouse. I mean, Saudi Arabia beat Argentina um, in the first game. Uh, and so, you know, and that's not, you know, that wasn't a minor feat. Um, but I think that like largely doing it because you think that you want growth in, in the sport is sort of a minor side thing that that's not that big of a deal. Well, what you said earlier too, though, just even if it doesn't have any tangible change at all, just the concept and the principle of a world cup seems to suggest that you know there shouldn't be a region of the world that we block off from hosting and it's not like there is a country in the middle east that doesn't have some of the problems that qatar has in terms of heat obviously in terms of a lack of infrastructure currently so you know at some point you have to pick somebody in that region to to be the first or just accept the fact that the world cup doesn't happen in a pretty substantial part of the world. This feels like the motivating factor that FIFA would feel comfortable stating openly. We want to see a global sport become even more global. We want to see it flourish in regions where it does not currently have as much popularity as places like Europe or South America do. So we're bringing it to people who maybe would otherwise not get a chance to see a World Cup game in their region. I think this is very much a motivation that looks good for fifa and if they happen to pay us absorbent amounts of money you know that just happens to be a byproduct yeah the big problem was of course is qatar didn't have any infrastructure right they don't have soccer stadiums like brazil is a soccer nation right we can we all sort of understand that there are right now as we speak world cup stadiums that were built in brazil for the 2014 world cup that are 
overgrown and abandoned. Nobody's using them right now. And so for Qatar, the challenge, I guess, is, look, you built these state-of-the-art beautiful stadiums that are going to be in use for a month. What are you going to do with them afterwards? Are you going to then field a domestic league and foster talent? Or are you going to demolish them and put up you know, a shopping mall instead? I think, though, that's another argument for Qatar, because as opposed to Brazil, that is not a developed country, that let's take Qatar spending $200 million in public funds for this World Cup. Could you imagine what could be done with $200 million for the people of a country like Brazil, uh, for the people of a country like South Africa, which is not developing, but still could certainly use the money? For a country like Qatar, though, where the average standard of living for one of their citizens is in, incredibly high compared to the rest of the world. The money's not that big of a deal. Like if those stadiums just sit there, yeah, it sucks. It's not efficient, but there's not many people out there starving because of it or going homeless because of it. We'll have to see what they ultimately do. If there is any evidence that the motivation behind hosting a World Cup had some sort of culture building or sport building aspect to it they will take these facilities and do something with them for like youth leagues or something in the future so we'll have to kind of reserve judgment until that happens there are countries that have hosted major international events and they do maintain those facilities afterwards in beijing they uh, kept the bird's nest and uh, what the water cube or whatever it was the swimming facility and they use them for both the development of domestic athletes, and I believe they continue to hold like international competitions there. So we'll see what what happens with this stuff. Mm -hmm. Both of those built for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Well, that's money. Our third of the four reasons for why Qatar might have legitimately gotten the bid. And then the last reason would have been Qatar's previous back scratching for African football. Yeah, in this particular instance, it basically was Qatar using its financial influence, which we mentioned it has a lot of money and uses that influence pretty heavily, uh, specifically for Africa. So the Confederation of African Football had a general meeting that it was holding in Libya, but it had basically no funding for it. So Qatar put in the financial influence to make sure that that Congress occurred and was therefore granted an audience with basically every domestic voting member of, of FIFA that it was based in Africa. And a lot of other countries that were bidding felt that that was a little bit of undue influence because they didn't get to have a monopoly of attention from a specific continent uh, when presenting their bid. And uh, it was kind of like a, you scratch my back, et cetera, et cetera, that very much could have resulted in African countries coming to uh, the, the advocacy of Qatar as the host for 2022. Yeah, especially like what Jeff pointed out earlier, when every country has one vote, these votes are all weighed equally. Uh, that's a pretty large block and a pretty substantial swing in terms of who might receive the bid. And I don't believe we ever get to know who votes which way when it comes to FIFA, which is a, another concern of the organization, because that lack of transparency raises a lot of questions about how far this influence goes. And, and who's to say that this is illegitimate? They were able to assist a continent to have its annual meeting. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal when you're if you're valuing 
soccer in developing nations. Africa has a lot of a lot of power in FIFA because there's a lot of nations there to essentially block their vote together. And they tend to really um, be very organized in the way that they want to vote for who gets what. Well, all right, we've got our four reasons. Neither of you seems super convinced by any of the four. So bribery, is that what we're just coming back to is the, the way that Qatar got the bid? Are, are we just going to go out and say it? I mean, I think I think that's largely what got it over the line, right? Because I mean, I think the problem is, is that you have a country that has the infrastructure to host. The United States already has, they don't need to build any stadiums. It's already there. It's a nation that is on the precipice of becoming a very, you know, prominent soccer nation. We're probably, I mean, I'm guessing we're probably only 10 to 20 years out from essentially being a real player on the world stage. You've got England, right, which is uh, which is the home of soccer, as they'll say. And again, same sort of thing, right? They don't need to build any stadiums. England's even perfect because it's such a small country with so many stadiums that travel's really kind of a small, you know, a smaller factor. Um, the biggest thing for the United States is is that, of course, you know, we span multiple time zones and that, and travels are really big. You know, it is a big deal. Um, but with England, it was like. Why are we staging this in in Russia? Russia is not traditionally a big soccer loving nation. They did have some of the infrastructure that was already available, but it just seemed like a little bit of a no brainer for either one of them. And then to go Russia and Qatar, I see it, right? There's plausible deniability in the Russia bit because, again, infrastructure is there. They're a relatively rich nation. They're not a soccer crazy nation, but you could see how they have the accommodation stuff like that. In Qatar is there are more people in Qatar right now for the World Cup than there actually are citizens in Qatar. I wouldn't be surprised. It's such a small country. It is a tiny country. And how are you going to have that many people converging for a month in a country and not have issues with infrastructure? It beggars belief. I mean, it's just caused so many problems. Who thinks that this is a great idea, right? You sort of wonder if it's not corruption, then what is it? I think going back to our money point, I think that points to more likelihood for bribery than otherwise. Initially, I saw that they outspent so many different countries by, you know, at least four times, perhaps quite a bit more with their $200 million in public funds. But they also have untold quantities of private funds that went to promote this effort. And, you know, with that lack of transparency, some stuff may have illegitimately changed hands to help funnel interest towards Qatar in a way that it may not have otherwise. I think that they would not stop by any means to make sure that they got this World Cup. And legitimate means plus illegitimate means together were the only way that they could be absolutely ironclad that they got the cup. And we're talking about all of these issues in a, in a sort of theoretical sense, meaning at the time of the bid, 12 years ago, I'll remind everybody, these are some of the concerns that people did have, but Qatar did win. They did get the bid. They're hosting now. So now that they've won, and this is kind of a moot point, did some of those issues come to pass? Was the heat an issue? Was the lack of infrastructure an issue? Over the last 12 years, from winning the bid to the World Cup happening now, exactly what happened. And I think the biggest one is 
the building of stadiums. That is probably where the the vast majority of criticism for this World Cup can be levied because they were not <laughs> built in the most um, ethical manner. Is that, is that a fair way of saying it? I mean, I think that's putting it lightly, right? Right. The the composition of Qatar as a country and the types of people that just already live there are not conducive to have domestic infrastructure building capabilities. Everybody in Qatar essentially has guarantees of very lucrative lifestyles. There's no income tax. The way that they set up their oil profit scheme is that every citizen gets a share of the overall take. And therefore, if you have people living very comfortable lives and you don't have very many of them, you're basically going to have to import poor people to build your stadiums for you, which is a very crass and cold way of looking at it. But that's more or less what they've done. Right. Jeff mentioned that there's more people in Qatar for the World Cup than there are native born. But also there are more migrant workers in Qatar than there are native born Qataris. And this is not even close. Literally 90% of the country is migrant workers. So only one out of 10 people is a native-born Qatari. The rest are there to basically build stuff. And get exploited in the process. One of the ways that they secure that they have enough labor is through some undue influence and kind of trapping people who don't have very many means into being committed to working in Qatar. There's a system known as kafala, uh, which essentially operates like an indentured servitude in a sense that it is not just that you cross the border and go fill out a job application and then you're working and you can leave at any time. But there is a debt that is owed with your employment that you have to fulfill through your employment in order to pay off. So the ability to freely choose like, oh, I don't like building this stadium anymore. I would like to go home is not an available option under this scheme. The the vast majority of the workers in Qatar right now come from India, Pakistan, Nepal. And this kafala system, they basically pay headhunters $4,000 around United States dollars just to get to Qatar in the first place. And that's what sort of injects them into this indentured servitude system because once they get there, they now owe that debt of $4,000 because they don't just have that kind of cash laying around. So they leverage their future income to get a trip to the country so that they can work. And presumably they think they're going to make more than that by the time they come back home. But in the meantime, they have their passports removed from them and literally are held hostage. I, I, it sounds extreme, but that, that's it's not a superfluous way of describing it. They are held hostage as their passport is removed from them. They cannot leave the country. And until their employer is satisfied that they've repaid this debt, they are going to sit and work in 120 degree heat doing manual labor. Presumably the people who are engaging in the system know what the costs are and what the stakes are. They make an active choice to get involved in this scheme and must know from friends, family, whoever else may have already done this, that it's not a system that they can easily leave. So if they go into it with the full understanding and acceptance of the terms, much like we discussed on our episode about dangerous jobs, where we're talking about the Sherpas in Nepal, where they know that the risks are that they could die on Everest, 
if if they are aware that they are taking that risk and go into it eyes open, is it really like the illegitimacy of the Qatari system? Or is it that all parties are complicit in it and we should just let people, consenting adults, make those choices for themselves? This, this is great. So your choice is either die of hypothermia at the top of Mount Everest or die of heat exhaustion in the deserts of Qatar. Sweet. And for official numbers, well, I suppose we can't get official numbers because Qatar says that there have been 37 deaths of migrant workers throughout this process. And only three of those were work-related. But (laughs) uh, estimates coming from places other than the Qatari government say closer to 6,500 workers have died because of these conditions. Jeff, you watch a lot of international football. So have you seen, if our listeners are unfamiliar with the TIFO, it's like usually the display that happens at the start of a match where people do something very artistic to cheer on the home team. But occasionally there are political statements made in them. Did you see any of the TIFOs that came out that were directly addressing the migrant worker deaths? I saw that there were a few that popped up. You know, it's really funny. I actually don't think I have caught a lot a lot more of the signs and symbols that I'm seeing more is about the LGBTQ protests that are happening. I've seen a lot more that's been around that than the migrant workers. Interestingly enough, it was fun to see the difference between how the BBC is handled doing their World Cup reporting versus how um, Fox has done their reporting. The rights in America are held by Fox. And so yeah, our announcers are not good um <laughs> but but the other thing is is that it is genuinely bought and paid for by the qatari government i mean they are hook line and sinker no criticism of qatar no mention of immigrant deaths no mention about their human rights issues no no nothing about it and you know the bbc did a, a really sort of poignant thing at the beginning of the world cup basically saying hey look you know this is a problem here are the issues we don't agree with it. We think that it's awful. But with that being said, we're reporting on the World Cup and it's about soccer and that's what we're going to do or football, I guess, for the BBC. But they wanted to make a point like, hey, look, we haven't forgotten about this. We know this is a big issue. The deaths are obviously a big deal. And you you bring up some of the LGBTQ issues in the country as well. To give people some background on the laws in Qatar related to LGBT rights, Sexual acts of male homosexuality are actually illegal in Qatar, with a punishment for all convicts of up to three years in prison and a fine. And for Muslims duly convicted in a court under Sharia law, the possibility of a judicially sanctioned capital punishment for homosexuality. So a lot of countries around the world have separate legal systems for individuals identifying with particular religions. So if you are not Muslim, three years in prison, which is obviously bad in and of itself. But for Muslims, you have the possibility of being put to death for being a part of the LGBTQ community. Uh, to, To be fair, there are no known cases where the death penalty was judicially enforced, but plenty of extrajudicial murders of LGBT people that have been unverified. Uh, So it's certainly something that happens there. And it's not just concerns over Qatar's stance on this issue, but when a lot of players attempted to show support for the community by wearing rainbow armbands, FIFA came out and said that they would be issued yellow cards for wearing non-FIFA approved apparel. So this is not just a Qatar thing. This is, 
you know, the this world organization that also has to answer for their actions on this. There's been a lot of activity in the past few years in soccer all across the world about the intersection of activism as well as the game and the the shut up and play type of mentality versus we're on a global stage and we should be advocating for what's right. We talked a little bit about this in our protests and sports episodes where we were talking about players who refused to wear things that were honoring like queer people and and sticking to their more conservative beliefs. But the overall expression in sports of personal beliefs has been tamped down quite a bit by organizations because it can hurt profit motive. It can alienate audiences, and obviously the organization does not seem to care too much about the ethics of uh, what is right and what is wrong, since they don't seem to care much about the well-being of their players to start with. And this runs in direct contrast to one of the arguments for hosting international events, not just the World Cup, but Olympics is obviously a big one, in countries that have questionable human rights records, and that is a lot of people suggest that we can use sports as a tool for liberalization. This was the argument that was used to grant China the right to host the Olympics. And certainly, the World Cup has been held in some questionable places in the past. We talked about Russia in the most recent occurrence of it. It was hosted in Italy under Mussolini. It was hosted in Argentina under a military junta. So FIFA is certainly not shy about granting bids to dictatorships, even preferring it potentially, according to some comments, does this argument that the sports act as a tool for liberalization hold up? Like, how's Russia been doing this last year? Uh, China's a liberal democracy these days, yeah, after uh, it was awarded the Olympics. (laughs) That's what I've heard based on the protests that are going on right now. I think it's protests that things have gotten too democratic. I haven't really been caught up on the news the last couple of days. It might have changed since I last looked. But I think you can probably say that these sort of things make those look a little less dangerous than they actually are. They make them warm and fuzzy. And this is where the term I've heard a lot about sports washing, especially in regards to this particular World Cup. Yeah. Look, the Middle East is now well known for its sports washing antics. As far as sports washing goes, this is a, a country's attempt to essentially buy a big domestic team and then essentially, you know, lavish millions and millions of dollars on on the team uh, and by the best players so that it makes the country look better in the eyes of its fans. So Manchester City, famously, is one of the one of the biggest examples of a petrol state taking over a I mean, Manchester City before was they weren't great. Um, they were maybe a mid to low level team. They'd been relegated in the past. I mean, they really lived under the shadow of Manchester United for a really long time. And then all of a sudden, last time I saw it's been like almost $3 billion have been invested, um, over the course of like what, 10, 12 years into this team and is one of the best in the world. And this is all just as a big PR stunt to them. The investment that they have, this is money that is going into the community. These are community programs that they're able to invest in. They have kids that are aspiring to be professional footballers who wouldn't have been get, given a second chance, now able to have a whole sort of series in order to be able to be promoted. There's a lot of things that they do that are community-minded and inject 
a ton of money into a community that's struggling. So who wouldn't turn around and say, yeah, I can probably look past the fact that women don't have rights and stunning human rights issues because, you know, they're putting money into my pocket and new businesses and look, the city center is thriving and we've been down for so long. It's basic human psychology. When they see a benefit to themselves, their team is doing well. Their kids have programming they didn't have before. Their city is getting funding. It's really hard to keep in mind things that are happening, you know, on the other side of the globe and people that are being affected that you can't see. And Qatar is certainly doing a good job, like any other country in that same category, of ensuring that as little information gets out as possible. I know we talked about infrastructure issues. We've talked about LGBTQ rights, but also just media in is a problem in Qatar too. And the lack of even international journalists and their inability to take the stories and, and take the truth out of the country and spread it to the world is another criticism of the country in this World Cup in particular. Hearing more about sports washing makes me think that the argument of a tournament like this being for liberalization is really naive. Ultimately, the audiences want specific things and they want things that fuel their interests or entertainment and in some cases make them more uh, wealthy as a byproduct. So liberalization is not a priority for the audiences. So why would it be in any way a part of the process unless it was completely incidental, which we know it isn't because things are not becoming more liberalized. So the audience itself would have to completely change what it prioritizes in order for that to be something that organizations like FIFA actively pursue. There's no profit motive in liberalization. There is profit motive in partnering with dictatorships, unfortunately. Sad, but true. And we, we definitely sound jaded right now. So maybe we could take a second. Is there anything good that's come out of hosting in Qatar? I know they've made some changes to the kafala system since winning the bid. That is one small change. Some people, most people say that it's not substantial enough, but laborers are able to change their jobs now without employers' permission. Uh, that could be a byproduct of the increased scrutiny that has come as a result of winning the World Cup bid. It's very likely uh, the, the criticism about Qatar has been pretty vocal compared to a lot of other host countries, and it could be impacting some change. The one interesting thing was, is I heard that a Qatari official was like, you know, this is terrible for us, right? We spend all of this money to essentially set up a World Cup to bring everybody here. and all people are doing is criticizing us and makes us look bad. And so, you know, I do wonder, um, is this going to be something that other Middle Eastern nations are going to look at and say, you know, is it worth it, right? I mean, uh, is it worth spending all of this money to try and sports wash this thing when really at the end of the day, how much sports washing is, is really happening? I think that Qatar really thought that they could buy a World Cup and have a lot of the world goodwill that kind of comes with that. It'll be interesting to see if you if there's any other Middle Eastern countries who will put bids in the future. It's certainly easier to control the image of your country by not allowing information to get out. But when you invite the world in, it's a lot more difficult to ensure what it is that they see and don't see. And it's impossible to stop them from at least bringing stories back. And no matter what you try to do during the course of that month, it's 
not going to be enough if you have endemic problems that are just underlying and and unchanging. But it's that exposure, I think, that also maybe making some other changes on social levels. For instance, Qatar stated that people who identify as LGBTQ would be welcome as fans in, in the country, that they could attend matches and not fear for their safety. Allowing people who they have previously had such fundamental opposition to free passage in their country might be the kind of exposure that regular Qatari citizens have never had before in some cases. And uh, one of the biggest things that we can do to increase tolerance is just to have people meet people who are not like them. And this might be an opportunity for that. The analogy that's been made here, though, is if you have a dinner party at a house where it's a it's a parents who abuse their children um, and you bring your own kids along and they say, OK, well, your kids are allowed to eat at the table. Your kids are allowed to run around, play, have a good time, and we won't beat your kids. You know, meanwhile, there's the there's the kids who live there that are watching all of this and knowing that if they try to play, if they try to laugh, if they try to have a good time, as soon as the dinner guests leave, they're right back to being abused. They're locked in the bedroom. And I think that that's probably how a lot of the LGBTQ community inside of Qatar feels is, okay, you're all getting a free pass here, but the second you leave, the repercussions of your criticism and the anger that the Qatari government might feel over the criticisms it's received is going to be taken out on us. And I think that between that community, I think between the migrant worker community, it begs a real question if we don't see a a tangible liberalization of some of the policies or an improvement in the quality of lives of these people, do we as spectators or soccer fans, do we support or do we watch this event? And I, I, I'm, it's, I'm interesting to hear what the two of you say, because obviously, Jeff, you are watching it. Kelly, you're not. Curious how, you know, what sort of things we need to think about as we come to that decision. Me not watching the World Cup is actually kind of inconsistent with the way that I've approached soccer as a whole, considering a lot of the issues that have been happening with North American soccer. I still watch a team that had a, abuse scandals. And up until the the upcoming season, I've given them money by purchasing tickets and merchandise and things along those lines. So it, if I'm so principled about the World Cup, Maybe I should just stop watching all professional soccer and be done with all of the moral questions about supporting organizations that are illegitimate. But I reconcile that by saying, but I'm supporting the players. You know, they have to get paid. They're working hard. It's not their fault that the organization's been abusive. So I'm still trying to reconcile a lot of those things. This one seems so clear cut that this was beyond the pale when it came to the amount of abuses that were involved and the amount of, uh, undue influence that was at hand. It's a little less palatable overall than NWSL MLS issues, but they're still bad too. So I'm still in the process of figuring out my relationship to soccer professionally and how much I want to pay attention to it and consume it. If I stopped watching a sport that didn't have any sort of like troubling issues with it, I don't think anybody would watch any sport, right? I think we'd be into like, What's the one with the scrubbing of the ice? Oh, curling. Curling. Curling, right? I'm sure I'm you know what? Here's the thing. I'm sure curling has its fair share of scandal as well, right? Probably. We just don't care about it. 
<laughs> Probably. <laughs> Sorry to our Canadian listeners. Yeah. I mean, look, the thing is, is that we're, we're going to be having a, a World Cup in four years. And there is not going to be any shortage of people criticizing the way that our government is run, mm -hmm. criticizing our, our human rights in the United States. I think that it is important to point out things that are happening. Uh, I don't think that a lot of people would necessarily know what happens in Qatar if this didn't happen, right? If Qatar never won a bid, there wouldn't be any light that was shown on this in general. Um, has that affected change? Long term, I'm not sure. Short term, to small effect, it, it definitely has. It's, it's small incremental change. We can't expect things to happen in a day. We can't expect sports to change anything. And unfortunately, you know, FIFA has never really shown any sort of moral backbone or any backbone or really that it's anything other than sort of a corrupt organization of people. And yet we still get together and celebrate the coming together of different cultures to support countries in their bed to be the best at kicking a football around and putting it in a goal. So um, I love the World Cup. I love the spectacle. I love the fact that it's every four years. And the thing that I appreciate about the World Cup is it brings a lot of different countries together in one space for a month. And there are so many really great stories of people all over the world getting together and just celebrating this wild sport. The beautiful game. And I will be attending as many World Cup games in four years as I possibly can. <laughs> well, I don't want to leave you, Jeff, with a, such an easy question to end the episode. So let's hit you with a, a slightly harder one. Who's going to win this year? Ooh, um, boy. I mean, obviously, my heart hopes for Argentina. I'll stick with what I had said said before all of this. And I think France does it again this year. France, okay. They have some problems in the back, but Mbappe is just, he's next level. I mean, he's such a good player. I mean, just such a good player. And when you have that great of a player on your team, they're going to be pretty hard to beat. Well, if you want, what we'll do is we can record multiple answers here. And then in a week's time, when we know who actually wins the World Cup, <laughs> we'll go ahead and plug that one in. <laughs> That's a great idea. Oh, man, I love the edit button. I love the edit button. You know, I think that actually uh, England is going to win. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think. But it. just in case we've got it on record now, I'll, I'll plug it in for you. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> they have they have a they have a long, long, long history of disappointing their fans. Well, I want to take the time to thank you for coming on the show. Definitely nice to have somebody on that knows more about this sport than I do. Um, rivals Kelly. Oh, uh, Jeff has got me beat for, by far. I, I know about two teams I care very much about. Jeff knows about the world. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. I always love chatting about soccer. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you, Jeff. Kelly, how about you? I know you're not actively watching it. Do, are you tuned in at all? Do you have any predictions on who's going to win? We can record multiple answers for me, too. <laughs> I hope no one wins. I hope everyone learns a lesson and goes home and thinks about what they did. I just want everybody to have fun. That's what okay. it's really all about. <laughs> okay, mom. <laughs> Winning is second to having fun. <laughs> Speaking of winners, though, 
For those of you who follow our socials at IndubitablyPod on Facebook and Twitter, we have a link to a video up, which is Kelly's unboxing of the haul that she won by beating me at our Game of Prisoner's Dilemma in our Trolley Problem episode. So if you follow us on our socials, you can see that there. And if you don't follow us on our socials, you could change that. And then you could also see that there. Yeah, you should absolutely watch it because I uncharacteristically say nice things about Josh. That's just because she likes the nail polish that I bought her. Well, it was a pretty good nail polish. (laughs) (laughs) And I like that you appreciated the coffee as well. Basically, I have no idea about coffee, but I chose it because the art on the package matches the art on our podcast's logo. That was my thought process there. Oh, Yeah, I see that. I thought you picked an aggressive sounding type of coffee because you were upset that I had betrayed you in order to win my loot. No, that's why I picked the nail polish that was named Poison. Yeah, I I kind of figured. (laughs) 